So uh, last week we began a what's going to be a four week study on uh, the church. So a four week topical study on the church. Um, and I don't have one particular text that I'm going to be working from. It will be will be sort of all over the place um, this morning. But I do want to read, uh, let's see, just one from Acts 20. Um, it's Acts 20, we'll go 17, verse 17 to verse 35. Does that sound okay? Okay. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified both to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in, the, in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life to, of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself And those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word uh, that speaks truth to us. Uh, Every uh, every piece of it, every word um, speaks truth. And so uh, we, we pray that you would allow us to hear the truth concerning this uh, institution that you have set up called the church. These people that you have called together into communion called the church. So give us ears to hear what you have to say, uh, say to us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So last week, we defined uh, what the church is and learned that most importantly, uh, it's something that, that, that God has formed, not man, 
that God has formed, that God has named, and that God is shaping, continuing to shape in Christ. We learn that the church is to be an alternative city, a city that is set upon a hill, a city, um, we can say, within a city. And while we are called to be in the world as the church of the living God, we are not called to be of the world. And that this isn't just a place you go on Sundays, but if you are a follower of Jesus, the church is who you are as the people of God. And there are many aspects of the church that keep us from drifting into just another institution. Uh, Mainly that comes from uh, our doctrine that we'll look at a little bit next week. But it also comes from things we put into practice that sets us apart as the church. So today I want to highlight three of those things that make the church unique, that sets us apart from all other uh, earthly institutions and even some religious institutions in this world. Because if we're going to be a church that is for the world, we need to be a church whose practices are from the scriptures and implemented into our weekly and daily rhythms. So I'm just going to give you three this morning, and I think all three of these are very important. Uh, And all three of these could be their own sermon uh, at the same time. So I recognize that that all three of these are massive topics, but I'm going to try to go through them in the next hour and a half. So first, belonging. Second is giving. And third is gathering. So belonging giving and gathering. So these second, these last two flow from the first, and you'll see that as we make our way through the sermon this morning. But number one is belonging. And belonging is another way to say church membership. It's probably a better way to say it than, than church membership, but belonging is that, because as a member, uh, you belong to the body of Christ. So to be a Christian is to first belong to what we defined last week as the universal church, or or, or how I like to say it is the big C church. That's the church across all time. It's the church across the the entire world. It's it's made up of both the living and uh, the dead. It is the big C church. So as a Christian, you are automatically a part of the big C church. But this big C church is to be lived out in the context of being a member or belonging to a local church, which we said is a little c church. So admittedly, there is no explicit command in the Bible that says, and I wish there was, but there's not, every Christian must join a local church. There is no explicit command uh, in the Bible uh, about, about that particular topic. But... There is also no explicit reference to the Trinity either, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, but we still believe in the Trinity, right? I hope. So why is, that, why is it like that? Well, because it's seen and witnessed throughout the Scriptures. You cannot deny that the Trinity is not something that is real and active because it's seen throughout the, the Bible. But the same is true for local church membership just as true as the Trinity is. And there are many factors in the Bible that indicate that every Christian should be a member of a local church. 
Most importantly, not because I'm saying it as a pastor of a local church, because I got a little bit of skin in the game here, so you might think, well, of course he wants us to be a member of this church. But most importantly, uh, Jesus has established his church to be a public, earthly institution that would mark out, affirm, and oversee those who profess belief in him. Jesus has established the church. Not me, not any other person in this world. Jesus himself has established it for those very reasons. So how do we see this? Well, there are several indicators in the Bible that strongly imply the practice of church membership and only make sense, they only make sense in a local church context, okay? The first one, the New Testament practice of keeping a list of widows. These are women who have lost their husbands. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is instructing this young pastor named Timothy who is taking over one of the churches that Paul has set up. And he says to Timothy these instructions, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, etc. And then when you jump down to verse 16 in the same chapter, Paul says these words to Pastor Timothy, if any, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, this is a strong ar- argument only because to have a list of widows implies there is a list of members in which to pull the names of these widows from and that there was some sort of formality of keeping up with members in this way. So if you did not have church membership, how are you supposed to know who these widows are and how are you supposed to know that you are the ones that are supposed to be taking care of these particular widows if there wasn't some sort of membership framework? So that's the first, the New Testament practice of keeping uh, a list of widows. The second is the New Testament practice of church discipline. Now, I'll talk more about this next Sunday. It's a, it's a big topic. But for now, I want you to understand that this practice only makes sense if you have members who have voluntarily joined with others to put into practice the biblical standards of living as a Christian and living as a church And then at the same time, asking their leaders to hold them accountable to those standards. We say this all the time when we when we interview members here after they go through CTK 101, they they uh, they will go through a a member interview. And one of the things that we at least what I say consistently is that you are not only making a promise to be faithful to this church, to this congregation, to these people here. But we are also making a commitment back to you as your leaders to hold you accountable to these things, to care for you, to keep watch over your soul. So it's a two-way agreement, a two-way covenant, you could say. And so when Paul instructs the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 to remove the evil person from among them, this only makes sense in the context of church membership. Meaning, how do you remove someone from something they are not a member of? 
We're not stopping people in publics and putting them under church discipline, no matter what sort of sin they are engaged in. Why? Because that would look insane. But also because, more importantly, they are not members of our church. They have not agreed to that with us. And so we have no accountability towards them either in that way. We're not even disciplining those who are regular attenders of CTK because they're not members either. So people who come into our midst, we're not, who are just here, they haven't joined with us, we're not disciplining them either. Only those who are members are committed to that, committed to that help even. So that's the second church discipline. The third is the meaning of the word join in Acts chapter 5, verse 13. <coughs> that says this. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the context of this verse, if you're unfamiliar with Acts chapter 5, uh, is the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And the reaction of Acts 5, 5.13 comes after this couple was struck dead on the spot for lying to the church. And just a side note, they were lying to the church about giving, which is, we're going to talk about that second. So... Um, they were struck dead on the spot. And so this is the context in which they are. So it, it, uh, in that moment, it struck fear into the heart of those who were members of the church, but also into the heart of those who were even thinking about membership. And so Luke, the writer of Acts, says um, that no one else dared join them because of this. And so this word join, because this word join means literally, in the Greek, to glue or cement together. To glue together, to unite, and to join firmly. This wasn't a lackadaisical kind of membership. This is not referring to any sort of informal or assumed relationship, but one where you choose to glue or join yourself firmly to others. And that's what it means to join a church. That's the word we use. Fourthly is the meaning of the phrase the whole church in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. The Apostle Paul, who planted lots of churches, but he planted the church in Corinth as well, later wrote to this new body of Christians about their many difficulties, and we'll be getting into that starting next, uh, next month, but this also included how to bring order to their public worship gatherings. So he began 1 Corinthians 14.23 with, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place. So who did he have in mind when he is referring to the whole church? Well, the only realistic and logical answer is the church members of the Corinthian church. This fourth, fifth, the instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership within the church. So in Acts chapter 20 that I just read earlier, verse 28, Paul is, Paul is about to set sail. He doesn't know if he'll ever see these people ever again. And uh, I didn't read the, other, the, the last part of that, but they are, they are left weeping on the seashore as Paul goes away from them, these elders. 
But Paul is instructing these elders because he's about to leave. He's saying, look, wolves are, wolves are going to come in among you. People who are going to try to take advantage of you, they're going to come in with bad theology. They're going to try to wreck the church. And so he instructs the leaders of the church in this way. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. So a good elder should be paying careful attention to themselves, first and foremost, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So a massive charge to elders. We, we've gone over this several times in our elder, elder meetings of, of just the seriousness of what it means to be called to be an elder because your life is being watched and then you are called to watch others. So the logical question to ask would be, how does one care for others if they don't know who they are caring for? So if Paul is saying this to a group of men, to a group of elders, uh, take care of the flock that God has given to you, they're not walking back from Paul and going, who is he talking about? Like, who, who are we supposed to be watching over? I, I don't understand a word he's saying. That doesn't take place. It is assumed here that Paul is saying, you have a flock, you have a group of people called the church uh, here in Ephesus that you are called to shepherd. So leaders of the churches must have had some sort of, of listing of believers that were members of this church. We have at Christ the King, we have a church membership directory. We have every person who has joined with us uh, in, in communion at, at Christ the King Church, and we keep up with those particular members. We pray for them. We're seeking them out. We want to know if they're growing in Christ. We want to push them into maturity in Christ, and we are doing that consistently week in and week out because we know who God has given to us as our flock. Because how could church leaders be responsible for someone until they know he or she is committed to their care? And since leaders were accountable for the souls of the flock under their care, they must have had some commitment to their care, like I mentioned earlier. So how do they oversee if they don't know who they're overseeing? So those are five indicators of church membership in the Bible. And I'll say, that, and I'll say this strongly. If you are not an active member of a local church body, you are one of two things, biblically speaking, not Kevin speaking, biblically speaking. A non-Christian, because the church is made up of Christians, so you can't be a member of a Christian church if you don't believe what Christians believe. And we welcome non-Christians in our midst uh, because your first priority for us is for you to come to know Christ, not to come to church membership. That is not our ultimate goal for you. It's to come to know Christ. So you're either not a Christian or you are a Christian who is walking in sin because to not join a local church as a Christian is to walk in disobedience to what Jesus calls us to. One commentator said, about this biblical idea. He says, in the New Testament, there is no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. Conversion was described as the Lord adding to the church, Acts 2.47. There was no spiritual drifting. So, 
Church membership is one mark of how we keep this thing called the church. The second is an activity that takes place within the church, but is surrounded by varying degrees of opinion and comfort levels. And that's the topic of giving to the church. So I do believe that the reason the discussion around giving is so tense and awkward at times uh, is, is a couple of reasons. But first is because I really and truly believe that we don't truly believe that the money that we have, the money that we earn at our jobs, belongs to God ultimately. On average, Christians in America give about 2% of their income to the church. It's the average giving rate. It's about 17 bucks a week average, which is a lower number than, uh, than giving was during the Great Depression. People gave more during the Great Depression when they had less than we're giving now as the church is at large. And 37% of regular churchgoers don't give at all. Zero. So that's one tension, I think, is because we don't uh, view our money as actually God's money that he's given to us to steward for his glory. And those statistics kind of read true to that. Another reason tension exists around this topic is a valid reason because we've seen seen money and we've seen finances and giving abused in the church. And most of the time that takes place through guys like me, pastors, who take advantage of the church and take advantage of its finances. So whether it's the spending habits of the church leaders or spending money on the wrong things within the church or just fraud. I mean, that's happened way too much. So to combat both of these, we need to view giving through the lens of the gospel. Because our giving must be, first of all, informed by the gospel and then led by the Spirit. Because when we fully believe and embrace the gospel, that reminds us both that God is for us and that God will provide everything we need for life and godliness. And this will then cause us to view money and giving very differently. So having our giving informed by the gospel, we use Jesus' own example. Paul puts it like this in the context of teaching the Corinthian church about giving. So this has always been a topic of conversation within the church. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says this to the church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So right now, the wealthiest person in the world is Elon Musk. He owns Tesla, he owns Twitter, he owns RocketX, he owns lots of other things, and he's making so much money, so much money that as I'm trying to check his net worth, every time I refresh the page, it would go up. So he's, he's worth around, give or take, $245 billion dollars. Now, that's an unreal number. Even for Elon Musk, that is an unreal number, okay? So, in, so I know, at least for me, that is an unreal number. So just to put this into perspective for you of how much money that is, 
if someone gave you just a billion dollars, I know it's like chump change to Elon Musk, and you spent just a thousand bucks a day, you would be spending for about 2,740 years before you went broke. And I say that to say that when Paul says, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I think sometimes we, it is a, it is a spiritual richness that we have there, but I also at the same time believe that to be a physical richness. I mean, the scriptures talk about the, the God, that God owns the, the, the uh, uh, you know, cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the thousand hills as well. Like his, his wealth is endless. Jesus is way more wealthy than Elon Musk and all the billionaires combined throughout time and history. And he gave this up for you and me. Every, he gave up everything. And at the same time, Jesus stands as our example of giving. Because the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ frees us to hold loosely what we have and to give freely what we have. Because like Jesus, we also, who are rich, so if you are in America and you work any sort of job, you are considered some of the richest people in all the world. So like Jesus, we are also rich. We become willing to we have to become willing to empty ourselves so that others can be taken care of and the gospel can go forth in our local context. That's what God calls us to. Paul gives more instruction on what this can look like practically in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, as he continues to instruct the church. He says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So there is a ton of grace in Paul's words here that that go against how some typically view giving in the church uh, negatively or how it can be taught within the church legalistically. Though Paul wished them to give generously, Paul desired for them to give more cheerfully. He didn't want them to grumble. He wanted them to give it away freely and cheerfully. And, and just, to, just so you know, not giving is, is, is not an option. Because God commands us to do so, and we are to do this in obedience to his command, but he wants us to do it cheerfully and freely. Because it will be a blessing and a benefit to us uh, as, as we do so. So it is for our good that we give. Proverbs 22, 9 uh, sums up this truth that it's for our good that we give because he said because it says whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor so one thing to consider when it comes to giving is to ask yourself how you've approached your giving up to this point 
and I'm and I when I talk about giving, I'm talking like to giving to the local church specifically. So not giving to to missions outside of this or or whatever to the local church specifically. How have you approached that act? Is it out of mere duty that you give without much thought or prayer, and it's just kind of like you just write something, or you we don't really write checks anymore. Um, if you don't know what checks are, you can come and talk to me afterwards. But do you just kind of put the number into the computer and just go with it, and then you just forget about it? And that's that's what it is. Uh, do you only give when you remember to give, or when you don't have something else you want to spend that money on? Is that how you give? Do you not give at all? You just give zero. Do you When you do give, so maybe you do give, maybe you give a significant amount, but as you give that significant amount, are you grumbling and complaining as you do so? Or do you approach giving within the gospel framework? So instead of being held to some legalistic standard, you now ask the Holy Spirit how much you should give of his money and joyfully give what he tells you. And that, I would say, is the appropriate practice. Praying through it, even even on a monthly basis, not sure how you do your budget, but even on a monthly basis to say, Holy Spirit, how much do you want me to give? Because I can tell you, the number that the Spirit gives you is going to be the number that you are able to give uh, cheerfully and freely every single month. Because to keep the church, and we say this in our new members class in our CTK 101, is that the church can't function if people don't give. So to keep the church, its members must give. This allows us to to pay pastors to give the majority of their time to equip and send out the body, to multiply ministry, to train leaders, to counsel, and to be free to study and to preach. It allows us to give to world missions and local missions, supporting others who are called to places we can't go to that don't get a normal, regular paycheck. It allows us to supply the things we need for gatherings like this and gatherings like we had last night at the women's event and gatherings that we have coming up. It allows us to do all of those things to bring the body of Christ into full maturity. Paul says. So giving is a vital piece to the church, but also a vital piece to your faith in Jesus. So we've looked at church membership and giving as a couple of means in which we, give, we keep the church. And another tenet of keeping the church that goes hand in hand with these others is gathering together as the body of Christ. Or to put it more bluntly, showing up. And I think the most clear biblical teaching on this is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, that says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me just read that one. Let me just read that. Let me read both of those verses one more time. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing 
near. The day drawing near is the end of time. Jesus returns. Now, I need you to recognize that this is not a suggestion by the author of Hebrews. He, he is not just simply suggesting that you meet together. Uh, it, it, it's not an exception as a follower of Jesus, because you could also read the, this verse, verse 25, as a command. Do not neglect to meet together. Don't ne- neglect it. And this is probably one of the more serious offenses that plagues the church today, but doesn't get addressed properly or at all. And I'll just give you proof of this. I had a conversation with a local church pastor uh, about a month ago, large church in the area, uh, and I spoke with this man, and, and he said that if he were to discipline his members for non-attendance, which is something we practice at Christ the King, two-thirds of his members would be under discipline right now. I'm quoting him. So what he's saying is, two out of three of his members, every one of his members, is walking in disobedience to the commands of God. And he's okay with that. Which is interesting because uh, I read it, uh, I don't know how you feel about the Pew Research and statistics. I like statistics. So, But in a 2019 Pew Research Center report said that approximately two and three Christians attend church at least once a month. Two and three. So I would just challenge you, if, if, that's, if that's you, um, and, and you're not cons- as consistent as you would like to be, or you just don't care, let me just challenge you, and you call yourself a Christian, first and foremost. Try doing that at your job. Start this week. Just, just show up, you know, whenever you feel like it. You know, just let them know, hey, I'm, not, I'm only going to be here two, two out of the three times. You know, like, just let them know. And see how that goes for you. Or if you're, if you're married and you have a family, try doing this in the home. Just show up whenever you feel like it. It won't go well. You're going to be fired. You're going to get a divorce. And your kids are going to hate you if that was how you lived your life. So why do we believe it okay to do it in the church? Why is this such a a problem within the local church? If we we don't think it's okay to do it at our job or to do it in our family or to do it at the sport that we're involved in or whatever it might be, why do we think it's okay to do that amongst these people? So what are the pressures on people that lead them to inconsistent church attendance? So some of the main reasons I've heard, personally heard, but I've also read from other pastors, and I'm just going to give you a list of these. Illness, no friends at church, holidays, and so you take a break. Uh, Tiredness, and that mainly happens because of the night before Sundays. Busyness, family activity, upset with a church leader, Sports, extracurricular activities, and this includes the sports that your kids are involved in. And just so you know, man, you've probably heard this before, 
But if you have a child who's really good at a sport, even if they're just the best at, at it, you know, better than their peers, they're probably not going pro. You know, like there's a very, very good chance they're not going pro. So stop wasting your time and your money on those types of things. Just let them have fun. So just a side note. Another reason is the emotional state. So some people don't show up because they're stressed, they're depressed, they're anxious. Broken friendships at church. Work. Needs not being met at church. Uh, Maybe an unbelieving spouse or a spouse who's just not feeling it that day, and so you just join in alongside them. Maybe it's sin. Maybe you have unconfessed sin and you don't feel like you can come to a place like this because you think you're going to be judged. Maybe it's a school function for your kids. Or you try and take the high road and say, and I've heard this one before, uh, you're not saved by church attendance, so I don't have to go. And so I can just stay home and I can watch Matt Chandler or whoever else online. And that's my church. Now, I say all that being fully aware that there are a number of different factors that legitimately cause people to be inconsistent. I recognize that. And we recognize that as as elders, that sometimes things happen. But those factors are few and far between. Because there is a worrying drift away from the church in our modern age not just by those who are deconstructing their faith or, or, or non-Christians who are not, never coming back to the church that they grew up in, but it is a drift away from the church by those who would say that they are committed Christians. Why is that? Well, I believe it primarily comes down to one's belief in their own individualism. And then they make choices based upon that, to suit the self. In their book, uh, Unmissable Church, the authors, they're both pastors, they write this. They said, uh, and it's all about church attendance. They say, even the Christian who can spot the error of pseudo-gospels is often blind to his own idolatry. So they're saying, even those who who are sharp theologically, they can quote to you the five points of Calvinism. They can explain it to you. They, can do, they, they know all the ins and outs of all sorts of, of theological nuances that, that they can make everybody around them feel stupid. Uh, even they are often blind to their own idolatry. He will go to church because Jesus is Lord, but he will not, go, he will not always go because family is important. Work requires long hours. He is busy chasing the kids around to their activities each weekend, and he believes that he needs me time to recharge away from the hyperactivity of the connected world. In the end, good things compete with the best thing, which is Jesus, for primary place in our lives. The mix of idols in our hearts has us playing a spiritual version of the game whack-a-mole with church, family, work, and rest. Does that describe you? Are you in that particular boat? So how can we begin to practically combat neglect and individualism? So I read a a great... uh, 
little article or blog. I, get, I don't think we call them blogs anymore, but this is essentially what it is, is a blog by uh, the writer um, Caitlin Beatty. And she recently wrote an article titled, Why I Still Go to Church on Sundays. So she's giving her personal account. Why do I still go to church on Sunday? And she gives four reasons that I think are very helpful and very true that I think might help us as we think about how do we combat this. So number one, she says, because I'm bad at remembering how to be a Christian. That's why I still go to church on Sundays. And this goes back to what uh, the reformer Martin Luther said, and I, I said this a few weeks ago, about beating the gospel into your head every week. And, and going to church on a Sunday does that for you. It's not that violent, but it does, again, remind you again that who you are in Christ, your identity, that, that, that God has saved you in Christ, that you are in need every single week of repentance and faith and forgiveness and the gospel poured over you over and over again every single week. If you're not doing that every week, you won't get that. And you need it. Because we tend to easily forget who we are in Jesus. Uh, Beattie writes this. She says, I can't actually live as if Jesus is Lord on my own willpower because the alternate cultural liturgies are incredibly powerful. I need to be reshaped every week by Christian liturgy to be reminded. So, I mean, you can look at it as this. You're, 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 you're going into the workplace tomorrow. You are going into a, a spiritual battle zone. And Sundays, in a small part, help you enter into that battle well. So that's number one, remembering how to be a Christian. Number two, because going to brunch with friends afterwards is good for my health. And I love the way that she puts that because it makes Christianity real and fun. Meaning the Christian community is more than just something we participate in once a week for an hour and a half. It's ongoing. It's all of life. We'll talk about more, more about this, this particular idea in a, in a couple of weeks. But, but just so you know, the, the Christian community doesn't stop once you exit these doors today. It's ongoing. So number three is because church includes people who aren't like me. So I've said this before, that there is no other place in the world, another organization in the world that brings people together from different backgrounds and different cultures, different age ranges, different ages and stages of life, and calls them to, to, to share life together in an intimate way, like the church of Jesus Christ does. And that's a good thing. Because our gravitational pull, our personal gravitational pull, is always towards those who are like us. Or they like the same things as we do, or they do the same things that we do. How many times have you met someone within the church context, and your first reaction was, they're weird? Or we have nothing in common. Or they annoy me. Or I could never be friends with them. Or they're married, or they're single, or older, or younger, or have a family, and I don't have those things, so I want to, I, I can't be, I can't enter into a relationship with them. 
Or they aren't Republican or Democrat. Or they're a different race or a different culture. The thing is, and what we learn when we consistently gather together, is that God has called you to communion with all types of people, and that is for your good. All of these people around you, and especially those who are members of Christ the King, these people have been put around you and put into your life so that you might gain maturity in Christ. Even if they're weird or a Democrat. And even so, this is a picture of the kingdom of God as well. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so when we are gathered around the table, that communion kind of points us to, when we are gathered around the marriage supper of the Lamb, what he's saying there is, Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, every language that's spoken, it were, the heavenly language is not English. The heavenly race is not white. The heavenly nationality is not American. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be sitting around the table with Jesus. So that's, that's a third reason to go to church. Fourth reason is because some people are called to reform the church from within. Now, this idea goes back to something the Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer said when he wrote in his book, The Mark of the Christian. He said this, he said, Christians or the church have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. Too often they have failed to show the beauty of love, the beauty of Christ, the holiness of God, and the world has turned away. Is there then no way to make the world look again, but this time at true Christianity? Must Christians continue to stand with arms folded, presenting to men and women a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ? How should we show the world that we are Christians? And one of the main ways you do this is by showing up with other Christians, ordering your priorities to make gathering a weekly, consistent habit in your life. You can't accomplish anything if you don't show up. You, you, you can't benefit from any of this if you don't show up. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You can't do that if you're not here because you won't know how to stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered here each week because you will have no idea what they're celebrating. You'll have no idea what they're suffering through. And so you'll have no strategy walking in here on how to encourage them in the gospel. And so they miss out on that from you when that happens. So at the close of his ministry on earth, Jesus made clear what was to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian until he returns again. In John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, Jesus says these words, 
to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, by this love that you have for one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And there's no way that you can love one another if you are not gathering with one another. And if we aren't joining together, giving our resources, gathering together weekly, how are we going to show the world what the gospel does in us and through us and can do for them if we're not doing these things together? Because if we are to be a church for the world, we have to give them something to look at, as Francis Schaeffer said. A beautiful picture of the gospel by looking at this beautiful picture of the church. While it is still broken, it can still be the image of the bride of Christ and ultimately pointing to Jesus. And as well, giving the world something to hold their own lives and their own communities that they are trusting in up to to see that what the church and what Christianity has is much more appealing and uh, and flourishing of a life and community because of what Christ himself is doing in us and through us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, even just in preaching this message, I understand and recognize just the uh, how um, how big this topic of your people is. I mean, this has been happening from the very beginning of time. How you have gathered a people to yourself, how you are making a people for yourself, and you're continuing to do that. And so, God, I'm, I'm so thankful that we were able just to take a, take a small portion of what you call us to and to kind of highlight it. So I pray as a church that we would be a church that, that seeks to put these things into practice, not to make ourselves uh, feel better, but ultimately to bring you glory and to point people to Jesus. So help us at Christ the King in all of our imperfections, in all of our mistakes. Help us to be a people who point to the beauty of Christ and to the beauty of what you've called us to as the church. And we pray in his name. Amen.